Amen, friends. Would you join me one more time for a very brief prayer before we turn to God's word? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we join with the apostles and we confess that you have the words of eternal life. To where else and to whom else can we turn? Nobody, nowhere. So we turn to you now and we pray that you would write your eternal truths upon our heart this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 21. As we continue our study through the book of Genesis, if you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on page 15. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, I want to invite you to take the copy that we have as a gift from us to you. There's really nothing uh, that we would want more than for you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself. Uh, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open to the passage Uh, So that you can follow along when I read it, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 21 of Genesis 15, and then I want to encourage you to keep it open in front of you in our time this morning because we are going to look at the whole passage, going to walk through each verse uh, quickly in our time together to explain what's going on there. Our passage today marks a really significant development in God's promised plan of redemption. Uh, So you'll recall Uh, That in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to sin, God promised to send a child of the woman to crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. And from that point forward in Genesis, we've been looking for that promised child. We saw that he would come from the line of Seth. And then from the line of Seth, he would come from Noah. And then from the line of Noah, he would come from Shem. And then from the line of Shem, he would come from the man we meet in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham. And we know that he'll come from Abraham because God's promises to give Abraham and Sarah a child of their very own who will bring blessing to all the families of the earth is a surprising promise. And it's a surprising promise because Sarah is barren. It's clear that this promised one who will crush the serpent's head will be a miraculous child who will come from a barren woman. Yet that promise of a child doesn't come true right away. 25 years have now passed since that initial promise, and Abraham and Sarah have waited and waited and waited, and that waiting has been filled, as we have seen, with ups and downs. They've trusted God at times, and struggle to trust God at times. They've even tried to make the promise come true by having a child through Hagar, Abraham's servant. But God said, no, that is not the promised child. Ishmael is not the promised child. And finally, after 25 years of waiting, the promise comes true. God makes good on his word and does the impossible. Abraham and Sarah have their very own son. And that son, as we'll see in our passage, is the chosen son through whom the child who would crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin would come. We're gonna see that in our passage. So I want you to follow along as I read Genesis chapter 21, verses one to 21 for us. This is God's word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, 
And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. There's a lot going on in this passage and a lot that we're not going to be able to discuss because of how much is going on in, our, in the passage. But I think what is central to this chapter and what Moses wants us to see is the miraculous birth of Isaac. Now, the miraculous birth of Isaac and God's clear choice to bless him over and against Ishmael sets the stage for what Genesis 21 has to teach us today. And that main point for us, for those of you who've trusted Christ, is since God has miraculously called you into existence and chosen you to receive his promised salvation, you should trust, praise, and obey God. And in order to help you see that from the text, we need to do a little bit of work and so what I'm going to do is just walk through the whole passage, just kind of explaining what's there. And then we're going to consider what this passage would have meant for the original audience, Israel, 
And then we're going to think about what it means for us and, and how we can see ourselves in this passage and, and what it has to teach us today. So I want you to go ahead with your Bible open and look down with me at the text where we find that the long-awaited promise of a child comes true. I want you to notice in verse 1 that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Back in chapter 18, God told Sarah that within a year's time, he would visit her again, and when he did, she would have a child. And she responded, does anyone remember, any of the kids remember? How did Sarah respond to God's promise? By laughing, yeah, by laughing. And we're going to see that God's like, you laughed at me, now I'm going to laugh at you. You're going to name your son Isaac, which means laughter. You're going to end up laughing in praise. So she responded by laughing in disbelief, but she learns that what may seem impossible to us, like a hundred-year-old barren woman and an old man having a child, is not impossible for God. God visits her, she gives birth to a son. And I want you to notice how Moses emphasizes that everything God said would come true, comes true. Look at verse one. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him, at the time of which God had said it would happen. Everything that God said would happen, happened, happened. When God says something is gonna happen, it is as good as done. And Abraham and Sarah have a son. And though they've struggled to obey God and walk by faith as they've awaited the fulfillment of God's promise of a child, they don't struggle to obey here. Back in chapter 17, God commanded Abraham to circumcise all the male members of his household. And he told Abraham that when this son was born, he was to name him Isaac. And we see there that Abraham obeys God. He names the boy Isaac, and in verse four, he circumcises Isaac on the eighth day as God commanded him to do. And the birth of this child was cause for praise. Not only does his name mean laughter, but Sarah highlights the joy that he has brought to her. Look at verse six. God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. Not they will laugh at you as though they're making fun of you. They are going to join alongside of you, Sarah, and say, look at what the Lord has done for you. Praise be to God for keeping his promises to you. God has filled Sarah with joy-filled laughter because of Isaac, and everyone in her household is filled with joy-filled laughter too. The fulfillment of God's promises is cause for praise and celebration. And frankly, it's cause for astonishment Look at verse 7. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Right? Who could have ever thought that this was possible? Abraham's 100 years old. I'm almost 100 years old and I'm barren. Nobody has children in those circumstances, yet God, as astonishing as it may seem to us, God has done it. Who could have said that this was possible? Yet with God, all things are possible. I have borne Abraham a son in his old age, right? Who would have thunk it? Who could have thought this was possible? The seemingly impossible has come true. Yet, we quickly find out that Isaac's birth is not universally met with joy. Conflict arises between the chosen son Isaac and his brother Ishmael. That's what we see in verses 8 to 14. 
You'll notice in verse eight, if you look there with me, Abraham throws a feast to celebrate Isaac's weaning. There weren't stores back in the day when this, this book was written. There wasn't anywhere you could go to get powdered formula. There wasn't water at your disposal to always be able to feed the child. And so children in this culture normally weren't weaned until the age of three. So it's been a few years. Uh, a few years have passed since his birth. But the feast that Abraham throws for his weaning isn't as important as what happens at the feast. Look at verse nine. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that is Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So you'll recall in Genesis 16, Sarah was struggling to believe that God was going to fulfill his promise and give them a child, and so she took matters into her own hand, right? She gave her servant Hagar to Abraham in the hopes that she would obtain a child through Hagar, and Hagar ends up getting pregnant with a son, Ishmael, but Sarah's plan totally backfires. After having the child, Hagar begins mocking Sarah and looking down on her for being barren, and now the child produced by that sinful plan is mocking the child that God promised to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah sees him laughing, at her boy, and while the text doesn't explicitly state it, it's clear he's mocking Isaac and the celebration being held for Isaac and Sarah isn't having it. Look at verse 10. She tells Abraham, you need to get rid of the woman, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael, because Ishmael is not gonna inherit uh, what God has promised us. That inheritance is for Isaac. Now, I wanna be clear here. If you're reading this passage in a vacuum, in isolation from the rest of Genesis, this seems harsh. Cast out the woman and her son into the wilderness? Do you know what's gonna happen to them in the wilderness? Kids, what happens to people in the wilderness? They die. There's no water. It's ridiculously hot. The wilderness is the place between Egypt and Canaan. There's nothing out there for people except really hot sun, no shade, and animals that want to kill you. They're going to die. Come on. Have a heart. Even Abraham thinks it's over the top. Look at verse 11. Her request makes him angry. Very displeasing to him. You want me to do what? But we need to remember that we are not reading this passage in isolation from the rest of Genesis. And if we consider the broader context of Genesis and the rest of Scripture, we see that a profound recurring theme is present in this passage, which helps us understand Sarah's instruction. This is not the first or the last time we will see brothers in conflict in Genesis. Any of the kids or teens tell me other brothers in Genesis who have conflict? Cole. Jacob and Esau, right? Esau hated Jacob for tricking him and getting God's blessing from him. He wanted to kill him. Jacob and Esau hated each other. In the back. Cain and Abel, what happened there? Cain murdered Abel. So Cain murdered Abel, Jacob, and Esau. Any else? Is that Natan or Uel? Natan. 
Joseph and his brothers. Bingo, right? Joseph, Joseph's brothers are like, we can't stand that you have our father's blessing. You can't, we can't stand that you're blessed by God. We're gonna throw you into a pit and leave you for dead. In each case, in each case, the brother who received God's promised blessing was attacked by the brother who didn't receive God's promised blessing. And their decision to attack the brother who received God's promised blessing endangered the fulfillment of God's promises to them. And Sarah recognizes that Isaac is the child who has received God's promises, not Ishmael. And rather than allowing the promised child to be endangered by his brother, she tells Abraham, cast him out. And I think that's why we see God agree with her plan. Look at verses 12 and 13. God tells Abraham, do what Sarah has said, because for, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. Do what Sarah has said, Abraham, because all of the promises I have made to you of numerous descendants, of a great nation, and of blessing for all the families of the earth is going to come true through Isaac and not through Ishmael. And so in verses four, verse 14, Abraham obeys God. And before we think, wow, that's really harsh of God to cast uh, Sarah and, or Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness, we just need to look at the end of the passage. God is with them and provides for them. God knows what's gonna happen in the future for them. It may seem hard from our perspective, but God's like, no, I got them. Don't worry about them. You, you just need to obey me here. So in verse 14, Abraham obeys God. The very next morning, he sends Hagar and Ishmael on their way, and they wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And as expected, Hagar and Ishmael are soon in danger. Verses 15 and 16, they run out of water. They're so near to death that Hagar leaves Ishmael under a bush and walks a few hundred yards away so that she doesn't have to watch him die. She begins weeping and crying out. I, I, just, I do want to encourage you that as you grow as a reader of the Bible, that when you read these narratives, that you genuinely slow down and try to enter in as best you can. Can you imagine how terrible this would be? She has to leave one of her children because he's on the verge of death and she doesn't want to watch him die. Goes a few hundred yards away, sits down. Can you imagine the, how bad you would be weeping and crying out if that happened to you? And apparently Ishmael is crying out as well. Look at verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. And in verses 18 and following, an angel of the Lord assures Hagar that God has heard the voice of the boy. It's a really interesting phrase there. You might recall that Ishmael's name means the Lord hears. The angel's basically saying, God has Ishmaeled Ishmael. The God, who, the God who hears heard the boy whose name means God hears. And then God promises to make Ishmael into a great nation. He may not be inheriting all the promises made to Abraham, but God is gonna show Ishmael and his descendants common grace. God promises to make him into a great nation opens Hagar's eyes, provides water from a well, and we learn that God was with Ishmael as he grew up. So I think that's what verses 1 to 21 mean, right? But what do they mean for us? Well, we can't figure that out yet because we have to figure out what it meant for the nation of Israel first. If we're going to understand what this passage means for us and how we should apply it in our lives, we first have to see what it meant for the nation of Israel. It's the nation of Israel that Moses is writing Genesis for. And what Moses wants them to understand is that they owe their existence to God's miraculous provision 
of Isaac. If it weren't for God miraculously causing the barren Sarah to become pregnant with Isaac, they would not exist as a nation. They owe their existence to God's miraculous power to give Abraham and Sarah a child. Isaac was a miracle baby, and Israel was a miracle nation. And they were supposed to live with an awareness of that fact. We only exist because God miraculously caused a barren woman to become pregnant with Isaac. And if God hadn't chosen Isaac to receive the promises God made to Abraham, we wouldn't be who we are today. And that awareness that God had miraculously brought them into existence and chosen them to inherit God's promises to Abraham should have caused them to trust praise and obey God, right? It should have caused them to trust God because if God could cause a barren woman to become pregnant, then he could do what God had promised to them. It should have caused them to praise God just as Sarah responded to God, miraculously keeping his promises with joy-filled laughter. So the nation of Israel would have had constant cause for praise as God miraculously kept his promises to them time and time again. Should have caused them to obey God. Just as Abraham responded to God fulfilling his promises by obediently doing all that God commanded him to do, so Israel should do the same thing in response to God's miraculous work among them. But the reality is they did none of these things. They didn't trust God they didn't praise God, and they didn't obey God. And it gets worse. The people of Israel were the heirs of God's promises to Abraham, one of which was an offspring who would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. The nation of Israel was going to produce a miracle baby who crushed the serpent's head and rescued mankind from sin. One of their brothers was going to be the savior of the world. And that miracle baby who came from the Jews to bring the blessing of salvation to all the families of the earth is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus' fellow Israelites do to him? What did his brothers in the flesh do to him? Did they worship him? No, they did not worship him. Instead, the Jews became like Ishmael. The very people who had been set apart by God to produce the Savior of the world began attacking the Savior of the world whom God sent into the world. They became like Ishmael who mocked Isaac, the child of promise. They mocked Jesus. They rejected Jesus, and they murdered Jesus by nailing him to a cross. And yet, in God's sovereign wisdom, this was how Jesus, the true promised offspring, would crush the serpent's head and bring salvation to mankind. He would do it by dying for our sins. What does Peter say? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And that offer of the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God 
through faith in Jesus Christ, is free to all and is for all who are here today. Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, which means he calls each of you to repent and trust in him because salvation can be found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. And to all of you who have already put your faith in Jesus Christ, who've already repented and trusted in him, I wanna ask you a question. Why have you put your faith in Jesus? Why have you believed? Let me put it a different way. Why do you believe when others don't believe? Is there something in you that makes you inherently different or better than others that you, you saw in Jesus something that they don't? Or has something else happened in your life that has caused you to believe? What does Paul say? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Here's what this passage is saying to you and I today. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of sins, you are a miracle baby. You are a miracle baby, right? Your faith, your union with Christ, your inheritance of every spiritual blessing in Christ is a miracle because you and I would never have believed on our own. We were dead in trespasses and sins. What does it take to make a dead person live? A miracle, a miracle. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Be born again, born again. Miracle babies, every single one of us who's believed, chosen from before the foundation of the world to have God lavish his grace upon us, not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy and grace and kindness. And since God miraculously called you into existence and chose you to receive his promised salvation, you should trust, praise, and obey God. You and I should trust God. And we should trust him to keep all of the promises he has made to us. Do you notice how Moses subtly draw out, draws our attention to God's trustworthiness in the first two verses of the chapter? Why don't you just look there again with me? Real subtle. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Everything that God said would happen, happened. And it happened how he said it would happen and when he said it would happen. Nothing can or will stop God from keeping his promises to us. Our God is a promise-keeping God and all of his promises to us in Christ are yes and amen. All of his promises to us in Christ are 
yes and amen. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. And you can trust that all that he's promised you, he will do. Just as he said he would do. Not only has he already saved you, forgiven you, justified you, redeemed you, adopted you, set you free, and brought you into his kingdom, he will carry on to completion the good work he began in you. He will finally destroy the power of sin in your life. He will supply every one of your needs. He will comfort you in affliction. He will come again to rescue his people. He will raise you from the dead. He will finally bring you into his kingdom, and he will grant you eternal life in his glorious presence forever. He will do it. Yes and amen. But just as Abraham and Sarah had to wait for God to fulfill his promises, so we also have to wait. Trusting God requires patience. But no matter how much time passes, we can be confident because of how God has kept every other one of his promises that he will keep those that are yet unfulfilled. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years. Right? Roughly 4,000 years have passed from that first promise in Genesis 3.15 to the coming of Christ. But no matter how much time passes, God never forgets his promises. One of my least admirable traits, and you can, my wife will testify to this openly, is forgetfulness. Terribly forgetful. I forget all sorts of things, and very important things. I forget what day it's my responsibility to pick the boys up from school, I got them in the car just this past week and started driving to the house with the family that we carpool with, and halfway there, I saw them turn the corner, and I was whipped a Yui because I was like, this is not my day. I need to drive back to the house. I need to act like I wasn't actually forgetful, and they, did, they pulled up faster than I could get the kids out of the car, and they were like, hey, did you forget? I was like, yeah, I forgot. Right? I forget what day it's my responsibility to drop them off and pick them up. I forget when Leah tells me about various plans for the week. I forget what days the kids have sports practices, when their games are, and the worst part about it is I've usually verbally agreed. Oh yeah, yep, got it, good, I'll remember, right? And my daughter Grace, my three-year-old daughter Grace has probably gotten it the worst. I can't tell you how many times, this is a seemingly uh, insignificant thing, I can't tell you how many times Grace has asked me to get her water, and I've said, sure, I'll get you water, and then like 30 minutes later, she's like, daddy, you never got me water. Right? It's happened so many times now that after she asks me for water, she reminds me like every minute. Daddy, you said you would get me water. Daddy, you said you would get me water. I, I have a track record with her of forgetting, so she has good reason to doubt that I'll actually follow through with the water. God is not like that. God doesn't forget. God has a perfect track record of keeping promises, and so we can trust him to keep all of the promises that are still unfulfilled. And for the kids and teens here today, this call to trust God is also for you too. One way that you trust God to fulfill his promises is by putting your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to think about this, kids, with me. Think about the people of Israel. They were born into Jewish families, and as a result, they had the benefit of knowing who Yahweh is. Yahweh's our God, right? They had access to the temple and to God's presence. They would have been familiar with his promises to his people as they uh, attended worship. They would have heard about all the things that God had done for his people. But even though they were so close to God, 
many of them never personally entrusted themselves to God. Their closeness to God didn't mean that they automatically inherited the promised salvation. To inherit the promised salvation, they had to personally trust in God themselves. So I I played baseball at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and during my years there, our head coach had a son. He was about seven or eight years old at the time, Paul Keyes Jr., and he would be at all the games. He was able to hang out in the locker room before and after the games. He got all the gear. He had the hats and the hoodies, had the best baseball equipment there was around. But when we won conference championships, Paul Keyes Jr. never got the ring. And he never got the ring because even though he was super close to the team, he wasn't actually on the team, right? To get the ring, he had to be on the team. In a way, that's it's kind of what it's like for you all, right? God has placed you in Christian homes. You get to hear the gospel. You get to come to church, which I, I know for some of you, it may be kind of a drag, but it is a huge privilege to come to church and to worship God. You get to know who Jesus is. You get to hear about all that he offers. But if you want to actually inherit the promises that God has for his people, you need to join the team by trusting Jesus. That's the only way you inherit that promised salvation. It's my encouragement to you all kids today. Trust in him by repenting and believing. Cast all of your weight on him, right? But not only should we trust God, we should praise him for miraculously calling us into existence and choosing us to inherit his promises to us in the gospel. Again, look at verse six. Notice how Sarah is filled with joy-filled laughter. God has made laughter for me and everyone who hears me will laugh over me. This joy-filled laughter is a form of praise. She's praising God for keeping his promises and miraculously giving her a child. Friends, how much more should we praise God for miraculously giving us spiritual life and choosing us to inherit all of his glorious promises to us in the gospel? But here's the thing. I trust you know this. In the Christian life, Praise just doesn't happen naturally for us, right? If we're going to be genuinely marked by praise, we need to meditate on the thing that will produce that praise. And what produces praise is meditating on God's mercy to us in the gospel. And it's not just meditating or reciting a bare set of facts. You should familiarize yourself with all of the ways that scripture describes God's salvation and what he's done for us in the gospel. Just think about all the different ways, right? Scripture talks about what God has done for us in the gospel. We were dwelling in darkness, but God has caused us to see a great light. We were slaves to sin, but he has set us free. We were in chains, held captive to sin, but God has broken the power of sin and death in our lives. We were wandering and he pursued us. We had fallen in a pit, and he pulled us out. We were wounded, and he healed us. We were blind, and he caused us to see. We were deaf, and he caused us to hear. We were, we were lame, and he said, walk and leap even. We stared down an enemy that we couldn't defeat, but our great king came and rescued us and defeated our great enemy. We had sinned and needed forgiveness, and our spotless lamb came to die in our place. 
We had no one to stand before God for us, but our great high priest came and intercedes for us. God is the father who runs to prodigal children. He closes the mouths of lions. He stills the raging storms. He lifts us up on wings like eagles. He goes before us and is with us. He has freed us from all condemnation. He has nailed our sins to the cross. He has seated us in the heavenly places. He has promised never to forsake us. He has given us eternal rest. We were lost and now we are found. We were enemies and now we are friends. We were dead and now we are alive. God's miraculous saving work and all of his promises to us in the gospel are worthy of praise. That's why we should think about singing loudly. Stir yourself up to praise God. There is so much good for you in the gospel and to our shame, we are more often like the Israelites who grumbled even while being immensely blessed by God. If you, if you have young children, I, I, I trust you know what this like and have perhaps experienced this. Perhaps you've gone out of your way to bless your child. You've orchestrated an amazing day with lots of fun activities, right? There's a cake and candy and what a video games, and trampolines, and just, just an amazing day for kids. Kids, everything in your wildest dream, I, whatever will be a perfect day for you has come true and your, your parents have orchestrated it all and they're like, they're gonna be so thankful. And then what, what, what can happen? There is complaining. And I don't know about you, but I'm just like, what? Like, how could you be complaining? After, like, we, 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 we did everything. That you, that you, we were trying to make you perfectly happy today and you complain. What is, what is going on here? How much more are we like that? How, how worse, how much worse is our complaining and grumbling, given all that God has done for us. We have reasons to praise God even in really difficult times, even in the midst of suffering. I'm not saying you should walk around with a fake smile and acting like nothing is wrong, but you can genuinely praise God in the midst of suffering. Think about Job. What did he say? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. That's what it sounds like to praise God in suffering. It sounds like Bonnie Holland, who is exhorting us to worship Christ alone, even as she is dying. And even in the worst of times, we have reason to praise God because we know that our suffering isn't the end of the story. What did Jesus say? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. With Sarah, there will be laughter because of what God has in store for you because your suffering isn't the end of the story. God will turn our weeping to laughter and our sorrow to surprise at the glory he has planned for us. But not only should we trust and praise God, lastly, we should obey God, right? Given all that God has done for us, we should respond in obedience. That even happens in the passage, right? Notice how the fulfillment of God's promises is followed by Abraham's obedience. He names the boy Isaac as God had commanded him. He circumcises him as God had commanded him. Friends, obedience is the natural, normal, and right response to receiving God's miraculous grace. This is why throughout his letters, Paul begins his letters by telling his audience all that God had done for them in the gospel. This is all that God has done for you first. Focus on this first. And then because of that, now do these things, right? We don't obey to get saved. We obey because we've been saved. God's amazing grace should have the effect of causing us to say, his ways are good because of all that he's done for me. How could I not want 
to walk in his ways. And that obedience, we have to recognize, may be difficult at times. Look at how difficult it was for Abraham. Cast out the son, right? A son he dearly loved. But that son threatened the fulfillment of God's promises to him. In the same way, we need to be willing to cut off or cast out any sins or anything that causes us to sin, no matter how dearly loved it may be to us. Right? Think about Jesus' instruction. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We must be willing to remove everything that threatens the fulfillment of God's promises to us. Gouge it out. Cut it off. It's going to look different in each of our lives, right? For you, it may look like cutting off watching TV or watching certain shows because they cause you to stumble. For others, it may look like cutting out alcohol completely because you're tempted to drink too much. But for others, it may look like cutting off your beloved smartphone for a flip phone because it causes you to stumble, right? Even if it's painful, we should be willing to cut it off if it threatens the fulfillment of God's promises to us. And for the kids here, a way that you obey God, one way, is by keeping your life open to your parents. Make sure there's no sin you're struggling with that they don't know about. And when you go to them, trust their responses to you and the instruction that they give you. Because one of the things that will help you trust and obey God when you leave the home is learning to trust your parents now and heeding their counsel. But when it comes to obedience, we also always have to remember that our obedience is never the basis for our salvation. That is what makes the good news so good. In fact, Paul cites Genesis chapter 21, which Katie read for us earlier, in Galatians 4, because the Galatians were beginning to believe that they could earn God's salvation by keeping the law. And what does he say to them? He tells them that Hagar and Ishmael represent all those who live under the law. And nobody can perfectly keep the law. And so all who try and live by the law will be cast out of God's presence like them. The promised salvation that God offers to mankind is not by works, but by faith in the promised child, the promised seed, Jesus Christ. Jesus died the death that we deserve. Jesus is coming back to rescue all those who've trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus will keep every one of the promises he's made to us. So let us continue trusting, praising, and obeying our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the gospel is It's far too grand for us to even comprehend. We cannot fathom what is the height and breadth and depth and width of your love for us in Jesus Christ. But we pray that even through this time that we've just spent in your word, you would open up our awareness of how glorious your gospel is just a little bit more. And we pray that you would keep doing that until you take us home to be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.